We're gonna talk about comics from Devil's Due It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do Our guests will explain it all to you Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read Oh, oh Hey, 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 it's me, Mark. Welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. At least that's what my brother thinks. If you are new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. Now, today we are continuing our deep dive into the Devil's Due era of G.I. Joe with a, a special interview uh and before i introduce that person i'll just bring along uh the devil on my shoulder it is a real american tim it's tim finn hello mark and hello listeners (laughs) hello tim now uh today you and i are going to be talking to christopher crank aka crank exclamation mark we'll ask him about how to pronounce that in a minute i think he is a comics letterer based out of cincinnati ohio his uh, work includes lettering things such as revival hack slash rick and morty uh, battle pug and very excitingly actually for me uh, and probably for you uh, jonna and the unpossible monsters which is chris samney's uh, recent book But beyond that, and most importantly for us here today, he was part of the Devil's Due bullpen, as it was uh, the webmaster for the Devil's Due era of G.I. Joe, uh, the letters page man for a time, uh, and also the letterer on uh, G.I. Joe for a little while on uh, Devil's Due as well, Um, and uh, much more besides, which I'm sure we'll get into. So all of that intro done. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Crank. Hi. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> Good. How are you? I'm all right. Um, how do we pronounce Crank? Is it just always shouted? How do we know that we've got uh, the exclamation mark uh, in there? I, I'm just a very excitable person. So, <laughs> you know, it. Uh, actually, it's, it's kind of a joke because I'm not really, I'm kind of deadpan most of the time. Um, it's just a way of, you know, making it happier i guess I, I i guess i was going for an effect you know with the all lowercase and the exclamation point don't really remember why because it's been so long i'm but. interested in it always sounding like a problem or a complaint particularly from another room <laughs> that, might, that might be how it got started yeah i don't i don't really remember That's, i mean it, Frank, it actually it actually is my last name just for the record i mean without the exclamation point you know but yeah, I'm not too sure if uh, if punctuation is allowed on official uh, like birth certificates and and all of that kind of stuff. Possibly, possibly not. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, so I just just uh, let me interject something here real quick because I'm I'm kind of excited about it, even though I've already missed it. Um, while I was waiting for us to get started, I was looking up. I, I remembered uh, the Robo Skulls from Action Force, mm-hmm. and because uh, <laughs> I think didn't we. Devils do. Didn't we? we did a Red Shadows arc, didn't we? That's right. Yeah. I don't Towards, remember if we... um, the end of Brandon Jerwa had the Red Shadows. Right. And I don't remember if we got to work the Robo Skull into that or not. No, no. It was a. It was kind of the name Red Shadows and the 
I guess the costume being red was about as far as you went with oh, that whole okay. thing. Well, hey, at least we got the name right. Because um, I remember we liked, like, me and Sam Wells, who worked at Devil's Do, we, we loved the Robo Skull. We thought it was just awesome, mm. you know. And I, I think we were we were probably pushing to get it worked in, but it, there was probably some sort of licensing thing involved. But mm. um, I was just looking up the Robo Skull because I was trying to make sure it was actually called the Robo Skull, and somebody's making a new one. That's right, yeah. The I, fine folks at Skeletron are making a RoboSkull Mark II. And it looks pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, sure does. <laughs> it's fantastic. So, yeah, anyway, sorry, I just wanted to mention that before I forgot, because I was kind of excited when I saw it, but I've already missed, <laughs> already missed so the Kickstarter your, and everything. But, you know. well, I do hope that's part of your research for, for, jo- for joining us today. You, you sort of led astray and end up buying a RoboSkull. That would be great. <laughs> It'd be nice if I could, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Continue. <laughs> yeah. So, so Crank is is your surname, right? But um, how did it end up being uh, used as your sort of nom de plume, where it, you know your professional work? Um. Well, in the offices, we usually went by our last names. Uh-huh. I don't remember how that got started, and not everybody did. Like um, Josh, we still call it Josh, but you know, Mike was Norton, and I was Crank. Tim Seeley, stuff like that, you know. And I guess I had another online nickname, which was just a portmanteau of my first and last name. And um, I stopped using that when we started the Joe message boards, and I needed a new one, so I just went by my last name. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's how that got started. And so when I started working as a letterer and needing my name for professional credits and stuff, I just went by that because... It was easy to spell. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very small because if I put my full name out on a book, it's like a really long name, you know? Right. <clears throat> so Crank was yeah, easy. <laughs> it was pithy. It, it, you know, stays in people's memory. The letterers often go a little bit sort of uncredited and things like that. And I guess if you've got a shorter name, then it's more likely to be included as a credit on the cover, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, and that's only, heck, the past seven, eight years that. Letters really started getting cover credit regularly, but yeah. Anyway, so that's that's how that happened. <laughs> Were you always reading comics? I had gotten back into it. Like I read comics as a kid. I think my very first comic was I had broken my arm and I was in the hospital. And my mom went down to the gift shop and got me a. It was a DC book. It was um, oh, what was it? Not League of Superheroes, but Legion. Legion, yeah, the the one set in the future. Yeah, yeah. Thirty thirty first century or the thirtieth century? Yeah, and it was like a, an issue of that. Like I think it was a double issue or something. So maybe it was a, an annual or a special or something. This hospital sounds great. Comics in the gift shop? Yeah, I was. I mean, this was back in eighty uh, four, I guess. You know? Did that? Did that get you into comics? Did you seek more out? Yeah, because um, I following that, I got into started getting into X Men, and of course, I started buying GI Joe. I want to say, I guess I must have been buying G.I. Joe, because I think my first issue of G.I. Joe was that one where they were in Central Park. It was like five, issue five. Yeah. But that was back in like 82 or 83. Yeah. Hmm. So maybe I broke my arm earlier than I thought I did. But anyway. <laughs> where did you get your comics after the hospital? Generally, I didn't know of any comic shops close to me, so I would get them like either at the grocery store or the like the gas station or, you know, like a... Like a Seven Eleven kind of thing, convenience stores, I think. And where was this? Uh, Cincinnati. Okay. Yeah, I grew up here. 
Yeah, and while we're while we're talking about the the young crank and GI Joe, uh, you, you you start getting the the comics. Did uh, did GI Joe have a big impact uh, on young you? Did you continue buying the comics? Did you uh, collect the toys? Did you check out the the cartoon? Oh yeah, I mean I was I was just the right age for that when when it came out because that was I mean that all kind of hit right right in eighty two right I think yeah started yeah yeah so. I, like I said, I was a little late on the comics, but definitely I was playing with the toys and I was watching the cartoon. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to remember like that first wave of Joe stuff. I had a good chunk of it, you know, because uh, I mean there wasn't that much of it at first in that first wave. I mean, mm. you, you had like a dozen action figures, I think maybe. Exactly. Yeah. And um, a couple of uh, playset toys and stuff. Like I had, like I actually had the Mobat, you know, which was cool because <laughs> uh, mm. you could make it go by itself, and that was neat. But um. And I, I already had a bunch of Star Wars stuff, so like any vehicles I needed, I would just pull from the Star Wars toys and put the GI Joe guys in them. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of us did that. <laughs> right. I did not. We did. My brother and Tim, I did not make Tim was our a toys. purist. I had a. Uh, I remember specifically, I had a friend of mine had broken my X-wing in a fit of anger. I think. <laughs> so I took the parts and pieced them together into a new type of vehicle like what I could salvage of it. And then I use that for GI Joe stuff as like a glider kind of thing. Cool. Early, early customization, I guess. <laughs> when did you grow out of GI Joe? It was probably about the same time I grew out of a lot of stuff. Cause I was okay. So I was buying the toys and, and then starting around issue five, the comic. And um, my family moved to Florida for about a year and in Florida, money situation got kind of weird, you know, so I didn't have a lot of spending cash or anything. So while I was down there, there was this flea market, this place called uh, Howard's, I think, or something like that. But anyway, um, in one corner of it, there was a used bookseller and he also did comic book stuff and he would take comics and trade. So I had my whole collection up to that point, which was 85, I think that was an 85. So up to the, maybe in the forties or something like that. And it, the only way I could get new comics was to trade in my old comics. So I had to trade, I traded in my GI Joe stuff to get like newer comics, you know? Um, and then even that kind of ran out after a while. So after we moved back from Florida, still the money situation was weird. And I kind of just got out of buying comics cause I couldn't afford them. You know? And then in the boom in the nineties, again, I started buying comics around 91, 92 again, but at that point, G.I. Joe wasn't around, you know, so. Did you discover a comic book store later? Did you have a store you'd go to? Yeah, um, pretty regularly, actually. It, all through the 90s, I went to a place called, um, and now that you're asking me, I'm completely blanking on the name. <laughs> well, if you come up with it later, before we finish the episode, just blurt it out. I think it was Mavericks? Gosh, I, <laughs> I knew it, like, just before I was going to say it. But, uh, yeah, I did have a regular comic shop in the 90s. Did you, could you get there yourself on a bike or the bus? I was driving by then, so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess I could have got there on a bike, but. But it's, you were no longer dependent upon grownups. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this was, again, this was in the nineties. So. Okay. I was already, um, well, I, I guess, I mean, I graduated high school in 92, so I guess I was still with my parents for a little while in the nineties. So w getting back into comics in the nineties. Uh, I think I can take a guess, but what were the comics that were most grabbing you? Uh, image stuff, Malibu. Uh, I didn't really buy Marvel. I tried to get back into X-Men, but it, that was the, right at the point where they were 
you know, X-Men Gold, X-Men Blue, X-Men Fuchsia. I don't know. There were like a ton of them. And um, I was just like, all my favorite characters from the 80s X-Men were suddenly spread across a bunch of different books. And I'm like, I'm not buying all these. <laughs> you know? So I was sticking to stuff that was like single line comics. You know, like I was mm -hmm. buying Spawn and started getting into like indie stuff too at the time, I think. Oh, and DC's Vertigo. Like in the 90s, DC's Vertigo was just awesome. Like, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it was all dark fantasy and crime and horror. And just weird stuff. Like, you know, anything that basically DC's mainline couldn't do, Vertigo was the one. Uh, they were very much like Marvel's epic in the 80s, I think. Like, Was it at this point, did you start to think you wanted to work in comics? Or did that happen later, that feeling? Yeah, I... Um, because, you know, I drew as a kid, but I was never a great uh, line artist, illustrator, I guess. Um, in the 90s, I tried my hand at inking for a little bit. I, I met somebody local that was a, you know, a penciler. And uh, I was trying my hand at inking. Wasn't very good at that either. <laughs> um, and then I, I guess this is going to come along in the conversation anyway. But, you know, I met up with Josh and... Uh, Oddly, he was working with a fella I used to be in a band with in high school, and um, which was just one of those weird things that, like, we didn't know each other through them. Like, we all knew each other independently. But I, once I started working with Josh in the late 90s, then and we did the pitch for G.I. Joe, and that kind of got me into comics again, like working in comics, I should say. Did you meet at, like, a comic convention or something along those lines? The first time I actually met Josh was... This yeah, this is really weird because we had multiple points of, like multiple mutual friends that, again, were just all independent of each other. <laughs> the girl he was dating at the time was somebody I knew uh, from. She went to an art school here in, in town, and I knew her from another art school student that I hung out with. And then he was his roommate was a friend of my roommate. I mean, we were kind of friends too, but we were more like acquaintances at that point. And then he also, besides, he put on a show, I remember, like a punk and ska show at a hall, like a VFW hall. And um, my roommate's band was playing part of that show. And I, I think that's the first time I actually met him. He had a table set up and had his comics and stuff there. Or I was either that or I met him at his house because, because of his roommate knowing people I lived with. <laughs> Something like that. But that's how we met each other. It wasn't actually at a comic thing. How does that start to develop into him do doing more work or being able to offer you work or the two of you working on things together? Uh, well, also at that point, I had been doing websites for a little while. And I had just started getting into animating stuff with Macromedia Flash, which I don't even think anybody supports that anymore. <laughs> but at the time, it was probably the best way to deliver animated stuff online. So I had been doing that stuff, and he was just starting to work on a new book that was called, um, I don't think it was called Misplaced then. It was called something else, but I can't remember what. But it's what we wound up publishing as Devil's Do was Misplaced. And he needed web stuff for it, so I started working with him on that, and we started kind of doing a general Devil's Do website. And then he told me one day, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and pitch this thing to Hasbro. You want to help me on this? You know, like put together like a presentation package and that I'm like because he wanted to launch it with you know heavy web presence and stuff like that and um so I, I helped we did this animated thing that was real short but it was basically just like an intro to what the 
pitch was going to be about. And I think we had some sample art in there. And, and I, I think the whole thing was themed like Duke giving a briefing or something like that. <laughs> but and this was all, I want to say early 2000. Hmm. I guess it could have been late, late 99, but I think it was like early 2000. Were you two in the same space? Were you only communicating on phone or online? Oh, I'd go down. He was working out of his apartment at the time, and I'd go down and like we'd sit down and talk about what was going on and stuff. A lot of it was through emails. Well, like emails are on the phone at that point. Do you remember when he got the license? What do you remember? Sort of it, it becoming bigger. It was all. And I don't think I'm giving anything away here because I think Josh has already said that it was all kind of you know smoke and mirrors at the time. You are um, not giving anything away, but please, please, as much detail about how much smoke and how thin those mirrors were. <laughs> it's not as sordid as it sounds or anything. And frankly, if there's anything to pin blame on, per se, which I don't see why there would be, um, you know, it's as much Hasbro's fault because they didn't do any due diligence on it. So, But, I mean, the, tr- the fact of the matter is, is that when he pitched that... Uh, he just the image he presented of the whole situation was that of a more established company. I don't think he ever out and out lied about anything, but it was just he gave the impression that it was more concrete than it actually was. You know, can can I take a guess here? Like he might have said something like "us" or "we" when at that point the company is just him. Yeah, probably, and I mean he probably referred a lot to it as just like. He didn't say, probably did not use the singular pronoun very much. He used devil's do as a, a thing, you know? Like Right. And he, and he was never saying, oh my gosh, it's just me. It's just me in my apartment. But no, because if he would have said that. Hasbro wasn't, Hasbro wasn't asking. Is it just you? How many people work for you? Right. I mean, it, if they would have been doing due diligence, they probably would have asked for like a company, what are they, prospectus, I think, or whatever. Um, they would have asked for more company information, number of employees, annual income, stuff like that. And they, I don't think they did, you know? So anyway, um, Josh, Josh got together an artist and inker, hired a letterer from out of town. I think it was Dreamer. I think it was the same letterer that was on the book on the regular run for a long time. And uh, I think the letterer got paid, but all the rest of us were kind of just working on back end, like on spec, I guess you'd call it. Not until the money comes in from issue one from Image. Right, and I think we worked it, because at first it was being pitched as a four-issue thing, just to, because you, you had to put a number on it, because you didn't know what it was going to do, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think the deal was for the, the three of us, or actually for, it was four of us in that point, was that we were just splitting the money from the book. And I, I, and I, I, I can't remember what the split was, but it might have even been like an even four-way split, because... Everybody was kind of taking a chance at that point. Josh was taking the most financial risk. Um, I remember him, like, I think he had two or three credit cards he maxed out. Yeah, that sounds right. And uh, <laughs> it was, yeah, so, I mean, the financial burden was definitely on him. But, you know, the rest of us were putting in our time and, and creativity and stuff on it. And so, I, I, like I said, I don't remember exactly what the split percentage was, but it was more than fair, I think, in, in, in the long run, you know. And you were making the website or wrangling the discussion board at this point with, uh, with issue one or ahead of time? 
let's see, leading up to the actual release of it, I was I was doing some coordination work between like getting the files together and getting files transferred to other people and stuff like that. I was handling building the website. I had, like I said, I had worked on the pitch and yeah, and the message board. We started up a message board, which didn't really do much of anything until after the first issue launched. Or actually, it might have started picking up just before that because we did a, a con special that was like a pre pre release. Yeah, you say that. I remember. I remember being on on the the message boards in the run up to issue one, and and I was somewhat addicted to the message oh, really? board at the time. And there was a you know quite a a big and active community, and I think. Uh, sort of ahead of the the launch, there was quite a big kind of like expectation of you know what what's going to happen with this new comic, and a lot of people sort of discussing and almost like rediscovering GI Joe after the time uh, the time they'd been away, and sort of I guess before the issue one had, had launched, there wasn't a huge amount to discuss, so it was very much sort of like talking about the the Marvel days. Yeah, and I think we were we were getting some spillover from like um, YoJo dot com and stuff like that. Just people who were already an online Joe community were checking us out to see what was going on. Because I used to visit pretty regularly a, a bunch of those other websites just as just as research and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know. I can't remember where all... I remember yojo.com. Battlelines, maybe? I don't remember if that was around back then. That, yeah, that was later. Okay, and then his tank was later too, I think. That was probably like 06 or 05 or something like that. Yeah, I don't remember that being available at the time. I think it was... Pretty much Yojo. Just, yeah. I, yeah, I can't even remember the date that Yojo went, went live, to be honest. I'm pretty sure they were around before we were. Like, definitely they were. They were Because we, I remember going there to yeah. look up, like, file cards and stuff, because they were very informational. Yeah, I know that there wasn't a huge amount of other places that people could go to, you know, chat chat G.I. Joe. A lot of the the websites that followed were late, later down the down the years and you didn't have the likes of Facebook and things like that at the time, obviously. So right. there was less places to go. So I think a lot of people congregated at least initially at, in the devil's due uh, forums. And uh, the, uh, the year that Yojo launches is 1997. Okay. Yeah. I, I remembered them being around cause I think that's how, was it there that I found out about the, um, oh, what, what was the, the people that were trying to get it before us bench press? Yeah, which was late '90s, I guess '99, maybe. Yeah, and um, that, I think that's where I first saw, like, because th- they actually had posted some art and stuff too. I think. Yeah, the four pages penciled by Ron Lim. Ron Lim, yeah. Mm-hmm. So San Diego, uh, when when Blaylock, when we interviewed him, he was talking about the convention special. Sure. He said he said, and then Image. I found out Image would make you a preview book, and they would consider that part of the promotional budget. And they asked if I was going to San Diego. That's how I afford to get to San Diego. We'll make this book. We'll just sell it there. We just sat there with our little army green plastic containers and some military like camo tarp thrown over the booth and sold books. And that got us through until like three months later, that first issue, uh, that first check came in from issue one. That sounds about right. I wasn't at the first convention and or at the first San Diego convention that they did as Devil's Do. Okay. I think the first convention I did with Devil's Do was in Chicago. And yeah, I, I remember very well. We were actually right next to, uh, again, I'm blanking with names. He's like the lead image guy, Walking Dead. Kirk. Robert Kirk. Yeah, uh, we were right next to him when he was doing a book called Battle Pope. 
Battle Pope. Sorry. Battle Pope. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember his, he had this big elaborate, like, again, to echo what Josh said, we had basically just this camo thing going on, you know, like green and, and camo-y and, and whatever, and, and ammo boxes and things. And um, it was very low budgety, I guess. And um, so we were next to Kirkman, and he had this big elaborate thing, even though he was he was still, like, fairly unknown, except for doing stuff like Battle Pope and that, you know. But it, it, his boot stuff kept falling over. <laughs> and I had to, like, me and somebody else that was working the booth, I had to go over and give him a hand to, like, shore it all up so it wouldn't fall down on us, <laughs> basically, because it was all this, like, metal girder stuff and that. It was, it was just, it's funny in, in retrospect, you know, but... Um... Sorry, I've interrupted you. Are, do you have other early convention memories? I'm like, were you, were you surprised by, by the the crowds, or were you overwhelmed because it was sort of bigger than than you know Blaylock's sort of small dream was? Um, I'd have to backtrack a little bit on that because, like I said, leading up to it, we, I mean, we did a lot of work in 2000, like a year before the the book actually came out. You know, we were getting stuff together. And when it finally came out, of course, it was the day after 9-11. And we were pretty worried about that because we didn't know what was going to happen. It's like, you know, uh, is it a really good idea to have a book about, you know, an anti-terrorism organization going on right after we've been hit, you know? Uh, there, and there was no planning involved in that, of course, because that's just when the book was supposed to come out. And there was, wasn't anything we could do about it in between the 11th and the 12th. It's not like we could... All that stuff was already in stores, you know? So, um, we were worried and we didn't know what was going to (laughs) happen. So, and of course, going back to the message board, that you know, I was the guy that moderated that thing at the time. And, um, it got really complicated at that point because, you know, you had the people that liked it and were happy that Joe was there to kind of help get them through the emotional part of 9-11. Um, and then you had, I remember distinctly one person coming on there and just talking about how America deserved it, you know, Oof. Um, which, you know, that's their opinion. My, that's, that's the way I tried to moderate. I mean, your opinion's fine, but you kind of got to use a little bit of tact, you know? Um, and I remember having to shut that conversation down because it got out of hand really fast. So yeah, by the time, you know, issue one's out and by the time I hit conventions, it was actually in, at the conventions, it was, it definitely picked up after issue one came out when we, when all we had was like the preview book, it was just some curiosity like, Oh, GI Joe's coming back kind of thing. Or like people that had seen stuff about it in wizard or whatever. Um, but then after issue one, yeah, we started actually getting not lines, but like actually a lot of traffic past the table. You know, I don't know if I answered your question. I've got really long. Yeah, no, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the other question I had was, do you remember when the office, uh, when it went from being, Blaylock's apartment to a very small office to a slightly less small office. And when you started going in every day or when, when you moved or when they moved, can you talk about that progression? Uh, well, okay. So my first experience was Josh working out of his dining room area when he still lived here in Cincinnati. And, you know, again, we would get together and just kind of talk about what I needed to do. If I had ideas for stuff, you know, like, because we were, like I said, we were planning on launching with a pretty strong web presence. We wanted that. We couldn't do what Hasbro did in the 80s. We didn't have the money for the cartoons and stuff. 
and we didn't have a license to do a cartoon or anything. We couldn't obviously couldn't produce toys because that's Harrisburg's domain. So um, we were like, well, you know, we can at least do this stuff, and that's why we were doing like animated web commercials and stuff like that. We had planned on launching like ancillary ancillary uh, websites material and like even different domains and stuff that were all kind of interconnected to each other. So that was all 2000-ish. I think at the end of 2000, beginning of 2001 was when Josh moved to Chicago. And um, I think pretty quickly he got himself a, a very tiny office space closet. <laughs> it was uh, in a, above a 7-Eleven, which once we actually, I moved out there, I, I loved because after a while they got to know what brand of cigarettes I liked. And I always went in there and bought those little tubey pizza things. They're kind of like corn dogs but with pizza inside of them so yeah 2000 i'm guessing 2001 was when that happened and then shortly before i moved out there he expanded into a second office space but kept the first one so but we started using that one as a closet an actual closet since that's pretty much what it was and then i moved out in early 2002 and at that point we were we had the closet and two decent sized office spaces and then sometime a few months after that we got this bigger office space that became like the administration office space, like Josh's area and his assistant and stuff like that. And kept the two spaces in the closet or dropped them? And kept the two spaces in the closet, yeah. So These are all in the same building. Right. So we were basically taking over, you know, like a third of the office space at this top floor above a 7-Eleven. And uh, I was back in with uh, Tim and Mike. So that was basically the art room, I guess you'd call it. Art and production room. And then, like I said, Josh had the biggest office for him and his assistant and then like a meeting table kind of thing for if somebody came in that he had to have a meeting with or something, you know? And then, um, Susan and Josh James, I think at first were in the front office part and they were taking care of business stuff, uh, answering phone calls, sending out mail, uh, mail order stuff. Cause at first we had, you know, we were, I mean, we offered mail order stuff right off the bat. So we were doing that as part of our, company stuff you know and then around i guess it was early 2004 we moved into a much larger space that was custom built out and like when i say that i just mean like the desks were and cubicle areas were all built to our spec kind of thing and you then dropped the previous office space right yeah which again i, I missed because i i liked that 7-eleven how far away were you from <laughs> that 7-Eleven and the newer space? Oh, far enough. I, I See, I moved. I lived in Chicago for about six years, and I moved every two years. <laughs> so, But, you know, fortunately, it happened to coincide pretty much with, like, office changes, like when we moved to the, the second office space. And then um, I was able to just get my new place in walking distance of the second office space, <laughs> you know. So I was, I, but I was still pretty far away from that 7-Eleven. So yeah, I lost contact with <laughs> with my 7-Eleven people. It's kind of like having a bartender that knows you and, and knows what drink to put up right when you walk in. You know, I I own a comic book store, and my manager and one of my employees, I guess all three of my employees, no customer fre- preferences. Right. You know? It's like okay, well, this guy is getting not all the X Men books, but some of the X Men books, and there's this special. And like, okay, this customer is going to want the special, even though he hasn't asked. And this other customer, I don't think she's going to want it because the last time we offered her this extra, she didn't want it. That kind of thing. Yeah, my guy, 
my guy Leo Mavericks, and then it was Mavericks, yeah, in the nineties. He was like that. We got to know each other because we'd sit there and talk when I came in weekly, and um, it got to the point where, you know, even if it wasn't on my pull list, he he kind of knew what stuff I like, so yeah, he'd pull things and recommend them to me. So in addition to web design, web building, and discussion board uh, moderating. Did you have um, additional jobs at Devil's Do, which sort of came and went, or which were a surprise, or which you sought out that maybe you weren't getting credit for? I don't know. I mean, like at first, again, because we we were a very small company, just a handful of people, really. Everybody wore a bunch of different hats at first. It was very, it felt very much like working like in a, on a DIY project or something, you know, a little scrappy team of people, and uh, so. When an issue of something would come in or whatever, you know, I, I, besides whatever I was supposed to be doing, like the web stuff or the animated things or whatever, I would do editorial. Uh, sometimes I would do art corrections. Sometimes I would do lettering corrections. Sometimes I, I lettered even before I was a letterer because we like had to scramble to get something done. Not on Joe particularly, but like on the other books we were working on. Uh, Joe, I do remember doing some art corrections on that though, like last minute stuff where Hasbro would send back some sort of revision they wanted, but we didn't have time to shoot it back to the colorist or, or to the artist or anything, depending on who it was. I remember, I mean, and this was all between 2002 and 2004, I think. Cause like once we moved to that second office, we became more, we hired more people. And I guess you could say we became less DIY and more corporate structured. I, I, I mean, I guess that's the concept I'm trying to get across there. But yeah, early on, I mean, all of us were kind of, we had our primary jobs, but we were all kind of chipping in on whatever needed doing. Did you do any uh, uh, taking of envelopes to the post office to mail out? I never, the... no, I never actually did that. That okay. was all, I think, Josh James and Susan Bishop that would take care of that stuff, I think. Mark, I've been hogging the mic. Jump in. Yeah, no, I was just sort of curious more about the, the sort of the website stuff, because it you know it struck me at the time and and sort of particularly thinking back to it that how forward thinking it is that you know launching something these days you know you need a web strategy you need to be out there in the social media getting word out and and it seems like such a big part of devil's due was you know having really effective web presence and really you know the community really engaged on the on the uh, message board and all that kind of thing so I, it was um, and and yeah, talking about it as well, I'm now reminded of those um, those flash animations for the for the trailers. Um, you know, no one else was doing that kind of thing, or if they were, it was sort of uh, you know one in a you know one in a thousand books. You know, Marvel might decide to you know do something every every now and again, but but yeah, it was almost like every month. Here's a here's a flash trailer for the next issue of uh, GI Joe, sort of. With uh, sort of animated panels and and a, a soundtrack, you know, get get everyone excited. Uh, looking forward to for the next issue. Yeah, just just really sort of um, any any sort of memories that that stick out from from that element of you know the, the website, the the message boards from from that time. Sure. Um, well, okay. So yeah, touching back on on the early stages of stuff, we had intended to. Uh, again, emulate sort of like that multimedia blitzkrieg that Hasbro accomplished in, in the 80s. Or we were, <laughs> we were trying to, anyway. 
so we wanted a strong web thing. I, in, in fact, I think when we launched, GI Joe wasn't even under. I mean, we had like a section referring to it on the Devils Do website, but we had a whole separate GI Joe website. I think it was like GIJoeComic.com or something like that. Something. I don't remember exactly what the URL was, but so we had a whole separate thing. I was I was actually maintaining two websites for us at the time, and um, we had intended besides the the animated things. We were I remember I I was doing a little looking back in my files uh, after you guys first got in touch with me, and I found um, we were going to do kind of like interactive online file cards. I remember. And I had some samples of it. The only one I actually had done was a Cobra Commander one. And it was just, uh, we were going to, my proposal, I think, to Josh, I found this letter pitching him to him, <laughs> and uh, or email or something. And um, I think my proposal was something along the lines of, at the end of the book, we were going to just enter a code that you could put into the website and then get to the, the file cards kind of thing, and you would unlock a new one each month kind of thing. When you say interactive, what about the file card was interactive? Oh, just it, it, each file card was basically like a mini website for a character, but it was all done in Flash. So you'd have so stuff would move. Uh, yeah, or you could click on things to access further information, um, or like to change images or something like that to get more images or whatever. I think the Cobra Commander one I had uh, three or four sections to it, and it would switch, like the the cursor, because with Flash you could. You could actually change the cursor that the person saw once they entered the flash window. And um, so it was this little techie rotating cursor thing. I think it was probably just a miniature version of like the loading screen they used for for the commercials and stuff. When Anyway, so like, yeah, it had a little animated cursor thing and it would make noises when you'd hover over stuff like little techie beep beep noises and stuff. <laughs> and um, you could just unlock different sections that showed like different artwork of the character, uh, like a, your, your basic file card, like profile information and stuff like that was up front, but then you get into like subsections. That was the idea anyway, but I I believe, because we had that, and then I, I mentioned this in the emails we were talking about, there was going to be a separate online, kind of like a U.S. Armed Services like magazine kind of thing that was called Lens. I, I found the files for it. It was called Lens, and it was... Um, you mean like camera lens? Yeah, it was, and it was written in the voice of Scoop, or you know, basically Scoop was supposed to be the one in charge of this magazine, Lens Magazine. And um, so there were, I don't, we had like a dozen, maybe twenty articles prepped and ready to go, and I had done several of them as a website already, like, and we were gonna monthly, I think we were gonna launch further sections of it or whatever, more articles, and it was stuff like. Uh, Flint on retirement, and, you know, profile on CoverGirl, uh, stuff like that. You know, like very basic. Like, but it, the point of it was that it was supposed to be like as if a magazine existed for GI Joe in the real world that was actually r- real. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and this and this did not happen, right? And I believe it didn't happen because Hasbro didn't want us to do it, and I believe it had something to do with. I want to say it had something to do with the the license that we had, which you know covered making comic books. And I think they blunt, pretty bluntly said, "Look, you've got a license to make comic books, and you know you can have a website to support that, to you know give information about it, but create, generating all this new content just isn't in your purview, kind of thing." Which 
I think is why I only have one finished file card and we never launched even that one. <laughs> you know, we didn't launch this lens thing. We had a, uh, we had a third website we were going to do that was like Department of Defense, like a mock Department of Defense website <laughs> that I can't even remember what was going to exactly be on there. By the time we were getting into that, they had already said no to this other stuff. So it was like, oh, we can't do that either. I'm kind of surprised. I think the only reason they let us do the animated Flash stuff was because it was actually commercials for our books. If we were just going to do that to like make a new story or something, they probably mm. wouldn't have, wouldn't have let us do that because that would probably infringe on doing like a, an animated license or something, you know. So when you two have been describing these Flash trailers for upcoming issues. I'm trying to imagine it because I don't think these are anywhere archived on the internet. So I'm imagining there's like text, like motion graphics where like the GI Joe logo shows up and it moves like past or like Cobra Commander's name shows up Cobra Commander and you see like a page or a panel and then maybe it like swipes left or swipes right or zooms in. Imagining a lot of that stuff and I'm I think I'm I'm guessing you were not creating artwork of the characters that moved. It's not like even in a very sort of chunky, clunky way. It's not like someone's arm would rotate and their head would turn or they'd blink, oh, right? There wasn't sometimes, character. Yeah, sometimes. Oh, there was. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean Okay, a little a little bit of character animation. It was it was very crude and basic by today's standards. But um again, put in context of the year 2001 you know uh it was pretty complicated a lot of it was just pushing images around but they all had soundtracks i tried to keep everything right around 30 seconds or under um but i i would write music and stuff for them and i think it was the one for issue two or three the the commercial was all like a there were i, I had a bunch of friends do like broadcaster news voices and they were reading like like news reports basically about the nanomites crumbling buildings and killing people and stuff. And it was go uh, back a go back a step. Okay. You're writing music. Oh yeah, I, I I would write you, music for the background of it. And stuff. Were you, were you also performing it? Yeah, yeah. How? Where? Usually in the office or at my house. <laughs> On a synthesizer. I think a lot of that stuff. Sometimes I would. Well, I I remember playing guitar on the James Bond one. A lot of it, I was using loop-based stuff. I was working in Acid at the time, and so I would I would loop stuff together, or sometimes I would just record stuff with a keyboard and a guitar and a bass and stuff. And I Do have you still have sheet. these files, the audio files, somewhere. I don't know if they're. I know I've got the. I've still got the working files for the Flash stuff, but it's Flash stuff, so I'm not really sure that they're useful for anything. <laughs> I mean, you can still download a Flash player and play stuff. And I think if I had Adobe's Animate, I could still like open and edit that stuff. I have Adobe Animate. You can send me your files. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I'm not going... Okay, fair enough. <laughs> the, part of why I'm asking about what, what's going into making these is that in the year 2000, the my year day job... The year 2000! My day job was sitting at a computer and animating in Flash, oh, in okay. Macromedia Flash. Well, then this you is, understand... This, what the capabilities of it were at the time. <laughs> yeah, I remember the big thing. We were doing animated shorts for the web for... Were you putting um, stuff up on, like, Newgrounds and stuff? No. 
some of them were for broadcast oh, and okay. cable TV. But uh, I think the second project that I did, it was these really short animated bits for like the Massachusetts Department of Education or something. It was about um, teacher standards. Oh, so okay. it was like teachers were talking to each other, like cartoon teachers in like a cartoon teacher's lounge. Like infomercial and, kind of stuff. Uh, like um, pr- promotional. I mean, it, it was like webisodes. Yeah. And, okay. and sort of the most animation that we were doing was like mouth movements and arm movements hinged at the elbow and at the shoulder right. and like head turn from left to right, but no in between, not like, like head facing right, but no like head facing center and then head facing left. And I forget what the function was in, in flash, but you would, there was some uh, keyboard shortcut where you could see sort of how much like bandwidth your uh, your sequence would take oh, because yeah. My God. in 2000 the internet was mostly at like 20 what was it 28 and 56k dial up yeah, a lot most people probably were still at, at on 56k like i mean i had we had a, we had a t1 at the office and yeah. we had a server cuz everyone downloaded everyone saved their files to the server at the end of the day i was on dsl at that point personally but we were very aware that are for this one particular project that was for the web and not for cable TV that we needed to keep the files small. <laughs> yeah, that was that, the constant like, concern. Like, yeah. like, you know, symbols, not a lot of arts, and like not too much movement. I, yeah, I remember, again, because I, I was looking at my working files and stuff, and I, I remember I was looking at the SWF output, and I, I had to keep everything. I think I was able to squeeze 30 seconds of motion animated graphics like raster graphics at at that for the most part plus music you know between five and seven hundred k which was still insanely huge (laughs) at the time like that still took like 30 seconds to download or something for most people you know which is why i had to have loading screens because you had to wait you know for enough of it to load to be worth so that you know it wouldn't stop in the middle of it while they were downloading it so I, i remember having to do that Sometimes I would convert the comic art into uh, vector art and use it that way because you could do that with Illustrator back then. You still can with Illustrator, but then it's then it's a smaller file and you can have it pan across the camera or zoom, or you can like redraw an arm or something, like have an arm swing. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes there was one. Again, I'm I'm probably I'm, I'm blanking on issue numbers, but I remember there was one that ended up with. Um, Storm Shadow throwing a, a, a letter up into the air, and then he threw his dagger at it, and it spears into the wall. And so this this is in the comic book. I think this happens, and it was it was I think it was supposed to be a photo of somebody that he was going to go assassinate or something. Um, this would have been uh, I don't know between the issue three and issue ten, maybe. Um, yes, I think it's probably that one where he was. Um, it was an issue with him sort of leaning over Hawk on the front cover. I think uh, I think he was. I think the issue in with... the issue ends with a splash of like his dagger going through the photo or something like that. I can't remember. Um, you about to tell us how you animated that for a promo? Right. So I, I I wanted to. I'm like, you know, I'm getting clever. I'm like, okay. So I'm, I'm instead of just pushing this picture around, I'm actually going to make it animated. So I had to cut this art apart and then joint his arm so he could throw this thing up and then this thing this letter goes floating through the air and then he throws his dagger through it and had probably took that took 90 percent of the time it, it that i needed to actually make the commercial you know it was just on that one part and it was like i said i i, I squeezed most of that stuff in between like 500 and 700 and something k every month that we did them 
<laughs> and it was just ridiculous back then. And I'm, that was even, I think that was right when Flash MX came out. And they introduced new functions for tweening and stuff like that, which was really handy. So you could automatically just pick keyframes and tween, let, let the program tween things for you. Do you remember when when you stopped doing these kinds of trailers and animated bits for comics for Devil's Do? Uh, vaguely. It would have been... I know the last one I did was, I think, there was a Cobra Commander special, wasn't there? That was just like a Cobra Commander issue. Is, is that the 13 cent issue, Mark? I can't remember. This would have been about 06, I'm guessing. 05, right. 06? Yeah, I think, I think that's after the uh after the book relaunches isn't that a year into yeah is um, it is it called hunt uh, for cobra commander or something like america's that? elite oh that maybe that was it maybe it was hunt for cobra commander i can't remember but the last one i did was it involved me there i, I had to do one for that and I, I used um i can't remember what the term for this is when you have a foreground a mid-ground and a background and they all move separately in animation and um layers well, they were layers, but there, there's a particular word for this that I can't remember. It's, it's oh, basically, multi, multi-plane. It's basically to, to make it look more dimensional, so you're not just scrolling an image across the screen. You're, you're moving three different things at different rates, so it looks like you're... It just gives a better dimension. You know? So I, I had to do something like that that ended up on like a tattered Cobra flag or something like that, I think. And um, I, I'm pretty sure that was the last one I did, but even before that, it was getting spotty because... I, I, I sort of remember a conversation with Josh where he was basically saying, look, we're a comic company, not an animation company. I need you to concentrate on doing other stuff <laughs> uh, kind of thing, you know, um, which, I mean, it was a bummer for me because the animated stuff was the most fun part of it. <laughs> you know? uh, so, yeah, there was that. And, and like I said, I think that was around 06, 05, something like that it was probably the last one. Yeah, just, just looked up. There was a hunt for Cobra Commander one shot uh which was oh five uh yeah oh five okay so yeah that was probably the last that was the last time i did one of those because we were we had launched that superhero line that was a devil's do original property and i remember doing a couple of those animated things for that and that would have been in oh five too but those that and that cover commander thing i think were the last things i remember animating for devil's do and I, I don't remember what the original question was i'm sorry oh we were talking about anyway we were talking about the online stuff Highlights of the, all of the online stuff from that time. Yeah, so um, let's see. I talked about the lens and the file cards and stuff like that. Oh, we we would push out a ton of wallpapers, I remember. Featuring, like, sometimes it was the art we would use for posters. Sometimes it was just, uh, like, splash pages from the book that I would convert into the right dimensions. Uh, sometimes I would cobble together stuff. The first time... Okay, so after Beck did the Storm Shadow and the Snake Eyes paintings... Mm-hmm. Um, I took them and put them back to back uh, for a wallpaper. And then that's, we want to do a poster of that too, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that originally started because I thought it would look cool as a wallpaper and I wanted to do sort of a yin and yang thing with it. So that, yeah, that was for online running the message board. I got the, you know, and it's weird to say this, but it's, I guess it's like any office where you, you get to know people that are there regularly. And then, you know, if you don't see them for 15 years, you can't remember their names. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So a lot of it's like that. I, I there were a lot of people I got to know pretty well through the message board. I remember uh, the guy we wound up hiring as like a military consultant, uh, Phil Cost Coast. Right. Yeah. Like he he was through that through the message boards. 
Um, in fact, I think that's how we got Jerwo was through the message boards originally. Uh, we tapped him because he was part of the community or whatever, and he had sent in a sample script for something else. And so, because uh, we were doing, you know, it's like side GI Joe stories at the time. We did that. We did that weirdo uh, snow one. I remember. I love that one. That was, great. <laughs> that was like, you know, the weirder GI Joe would get, the more I liked it, kind of thing. But um, now, this is frontline icebound with like the wear yeti thing. Yeah, and I think the, the idea of that was the old, you know, Yeti playset. But, like, what would that be like if it was a horror story kind of thing? Huh. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I got to know a lot of people. And eventually, somebody I had I tapped somebody from the message board. It was a guy named Tom from Australia. Uh, Tom Seal, I think his name was. And he went by Digger online. And um, I got him to start helping me moderate because I just got tired of doing it all by myself all the time plus he was in a different time zone so he could look at it when i was asleep kind of thing and i, I mean that was much later and i th I think i shut the message boards down in 06 finally and that, that was my call uh, it was just getting to the point where it was just too gripey all the time there mm. wasn't a lot of positivity going on anymore and do you remember making that decision with blaylock announcing it to the fans online. I don't think we made a big deal out of it. I think I just put up a notice and said, um, you know, on this date, I'm going to shut everything down. So, you know, it's been fun, guys. But this is a sort of a, the end of this <laughs> kind of thing. I, I ran it past Josh because I, I couldn't have just done it unilaterally. I don't remember the conversation, but he didn't have a problem with it. Oh, I, I think at that point, he kind of was more worried about it being a liability than a, a, an asset. Because um, I, mean, I, I remember early on when we started the message boards, we had long discussions about uh, auto-ban keywords and stuff, like things that just would automatically get blanked out. Things like kind of a loose code of behavior that would get you kicked off right away, stuff like that. Like we were trying to keep it because we were working with a licensed property, you know, and it was a corporate licensed property on top of it uh, for a kid-friendly family company. <laughs> so we definitely didn't want you know, people running around using racial slurs or, you know, mm. calling people dicks and stuff or whatever, you know. But you, you don't remember Hasbro having any problem with the discussion board. I I want to say it, one time they called us about something that was on the message board, but I don't, I can't, this is really vague and I don't remember it. I just remember it being a concern and we addressed it and then, you know, that was done kind of thing. Yeah, you mentioned sort of part of the decision to shutter eventually was maybe the the negativity and and you know how how was that dealing with that aspect and and also for the guests the rest of the Devil's Due uh, sort of crew beyond beyond just you you know seeing seeing the negativity coming through you know working hard on the project and and then potentially people just then not not being as supportive as you would have uh, hoped them to have been was that was that difficult. Well, when I first when I say negativity, it wasn't just about the Joe book. Like there was uh -huh. a general thing going on online where people suddenly got really grumpy, right around that point, like in the mid two thousands. And it, it just one of those things that I I, I noticed as sort of a general zitgeist. Like I'm like, you know what? It's just not worth it. <laughs> All we're doing is getting in fights with each other, you know. Um, but to address your actual question. 
I think everybody took it pretty well. Like sometimes it depended on the type of criticism it was. Cause if somebody's just coming at you like a crank, that sounds weird. Me saying that <laughs> I, like if somebody's just coming across like, you know, with their personal gripes about stuff, not actual criticism of the quality of the book or anything, then you can shrug that off. Cause it's like, well, whatever, you know? Um, and some, you know, a lot of times there were valid criticisms of the book. I mean, it, it's all relative to what you like, you know, but if, if somebody said snake eyes is getting too much like Wolverine, well, I can agree with that. <laughs> Cause I thought that I'm like, when we started focusing more on snake eyes and, and snake eyes, magic ninja powers and swords that can cut through gun blades and stuff. I'm, I, I was getting kind of skeptical at that point, you know, but as a run, you know, we didn't land it every time, but I think we did a lot of decent work. And that was enough, I think, for everybody to... You roll with the punches, like when somebody's talking bad about you. But as long as you think you're still doing decent stuff, it doesn't hurt so much. If that makes any sense. And I, I don't know if I'm mis- misremembering here or, or, or what, but was, th- was there also some sort of technical issue that led to it being shut down for a while as, as well? The message board? Yeah. Um, that... well, I remember we started on one message board system and then went to another. There might have been an issue with that, like getting the switch over to happen smoothly. Maybe. Because I remember it might have been, it might have just, it might have coincided with either the switch over where it was sort of down for a little while or maybe or maybe it was the, more of the shuttering. But I remember that there was a sudden explosion and, and propagation of loads of different <laughs> websites and forums you know and all of the uh, all of the people who had been on the devil's u boards sort of just migrating across all of these multitude of different platforms like joe reloaded and yeah mm-hmm. uh, battle lines and even brandon Jerwa had his own uh, forum and, and stuff as well so uh, i think it was all of those additional options that then suddenly opened up and that sort of more sort of concentrated community kind of just went in all of these different places different factions a schism I'd be willing to bet that probably happened around 06 in the shutdown, like when I shut mm-hmm. it down, because it, it was a weird thing, honestly. I I consciously tried to make it a, a place for people to talk to talk about more than just G.I. Joe, like our, mm-hmm. our G.I. Joe, you know. I had different sections for stuff talking about, like if you want to talk about toys and whatever. And I guess because of when we launched and the fact that, like we were talking about earlier, Yojo was pretty much the it like you know that was the biggest thing to go to and then we launched and we became like the second biggest thing to go to and it, it was just strange because we were just making a comic book you know we weren't necessarily all all about all things gi joe like we didn't have anything to do with the toys or like the palisade stuff or except that we knew the palisades guys but you know we, we weren't influencing what they put out or anything you know uh, we certainly weren't telling hasbro what to do because they didn't like us anyway for the most part can you talk about that i'm i mean yeah i guess i I don't know how much more i could add than what like tim or josh said basically we uh again we got the license through a bunch of smoke and mirrors and that's fine because it paid dividends it's not like we screwed it up or anything you know Uh, especially considering that they have disavowed the entire run anyway but yeah at the time there was another person that they wind they wound up hiring to put in charge of the joe department in house but before that he was trying to get the license 
And uh, I, I suspect he was pissed off because we got it instead of him. And I think that was just a matter of timing. I don't even know if it wouldn't. I don't even think that had anything to do with quality of pitches or anything. I think we just got there before he did, you know. But essentially, he just made our lives really hard. Like, he made working with Hasbro really hard. And um, there were just a lot of times when we'd pitch something that we thought was a good idea, and they just wouldn't go for it for nothing, you know. And I, I think they, again, up to that point, the three and three quarter stuff and the the eighties era cartoon stuff was secondary for them. You know, I, I think they were really trying to revive the the twelve inch line and the older idea of GI Joe uh, that was more traditionally a, like a military kind of thing. Where, come on, frankly, the eighties GI Joe they were superheroes that like Batman. You know, it's not like they were regular army kind of thing. Like it wasn't like you were reading the Nam or something like that. You know. They were basically superhero, grounded superheroes. Colorful costumes, everybody with their own individual thing going on. Stuff like that. And I, I just, um, the guy that they, that didn't like us, I, you know, I think he was wanting to revive the, the 80s stuff again. More so than the 60s stuff. But I, I, I don't think he was wanting to do it like we were doing. Because we were incorporating stuff in the cartoons. Because we liked it all. You know, we liked the toys. We liked the cartoons. We liked the the original comic run and stuff like that. We were just taking everything we liked and putting it in, in the book kind of thing. You know, like I said, if we could have got the Robo skull in there, we would have got the Robo skull in there. But yeah, it was just really kind of weird and, and difficult at times to work with them. They would reject stuff out of hand a lot. It seemed like stuff that otherwise probably would have done. Okay. And I, I really don't know it. That didn't, it felt personal, I think, because it didn't make sense from a business standpoint. Because we were making them money on a thing that they weren't making money on before that, you know. So to me, in my head, I'm like, well, what's what's the problem? <laughs> you know, as long as we're making you, once we stop making you money, that's a problem. You know. Do you remember any uh, any things that were rejected out of hand? B- bigger things, smaller things. Um, specifically, I, I mean, I, I remember the Kirkman thing that they they didn't want to do. Tell us about that. I, I, I don't know any more about it than what Tim and, and Josh mentioned. Okay. I, I just remember it happening. Like, it was, it could have been a thing, and it wasn't, you know. And it all came down to, I think, you know, them not wanting it to happen. I'm kind of surprised, in retrospect, that they let some of the weirder frontline stuff happen. Like that <laughs> ice story and stuff like that. Of course, I, I guess that was still early on. Um, we, had, we had more leeway early on, I remember. Okay. It started getting tighter as it went. And I think they, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to say. I mean, this was, what, like 15 years ago for me, or more. It's been, what, yeah, it's been like 14 years since the last issue DDP published, right? I guess 08, I think was the last one, last year we put anything out. So a lot of this is just really hazy. So take it all with a grain of salt. But it almost felt like, you know when somebody tries to, they don't want to out and out tell you to go away, so they, they make themselves so irrit- irritating to you that you go away on your own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I, it, in retrospect, it kind of feels like that. Like, they were trying to make it unpleasant for us so that we would eventually just go away, I think. And when that didn't work, they, they just, you know, gave the license to somebody else. <laughs> you know? whether, whether IDW actually bid more or not, I don't know. But um, I, I think it was out of our hands no matter what. Even if we would have bid 
higher than somebody else. I, I, I think they were ready to put it in somebody else's hands. So, there's that. Kind of weird, though, thinking back on it. And then there's there was a change of the guard at Hasbro almost immediately after I think that decision was made. Well, so <laughs> IDW had to deal with a, a different set of people, which uh, which might <laughs> might have made things easier for them. It makes me wonder, though, if we could have outlived those people by that that little margin, <laughs> if we would have still had the license. You know? could be. Could be. But it, and that's just the vagaries of how that stuff works, you know. Especially when you're dealing with a corporate where people come and go so fast. And again, when you got somebody working someplace that kind of has a grudge going on, like what makes sense from a business standpoint may not be the thing that actually happens, you know? Because <laughs> I don't, you know, or I guess disagreements in vision, even like where they wanted to take the brand versus what we were doing with it. Cause they started, I mean, we were doing like the Sigma six comics and stuff too, when they launched that one, which if it wasn't GI Joe, I think I would have liked Sigma six a lot more. Cause that toy line was actually pretty neat. That's an interesting take on it. It's just that calling it GI Joe kind of, well, this is kind of a boring GI Joe. Because everybody's costumes were kind of boring, like I mean, they looked neat for themselves, but they didn't look cool for GI Joe stuff. Does, it, does that make sense? It was sort of simultaneously too too close to the existing GI Joe, but also not different enough. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, we what did we do? We did that reloaded thing where we put everybody in black costumes or whatever. And uh, I remember disagreeing with that decision pretty vocally in the, in the office when when they were being designed because i'm like this is this is dumb this is just a military book it's not gi joe you know because <laughs> i mean there's certain characteristics of gi joe that make it that and i that make it the 80s joe anyway because again you can go back to the 60s stuff and that was more military based but that's not what we were basing our stuff on so like to me any step towards trying to make it less colorful less superhero-y is like a bad move you know but i i wasn't the one making the calls so there you go. I but I did like I liked the toy line for Sigma Six though because I thought the vehicles were neat, and the figures themselves, like the design and construction of them, was pretty neat. Everything was kind of huge though. <laughs> I remember that. It was like playing with the twelve-inch toys, but they weren't quite really there. They they were like six or seven inches, I think. Definitely a line that has its has its fans. I didn't connect with it at the time, but I didn't I didn't actually see any of it in person at the time either because I was so. Uh... No, no one was stocking it over here, so... Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, we had them... Like, they would send samples to us, so we'd have reference in that. So we had them around the office and got to play with them and stuff. That was, that was something about our offices. We had lots and lots of toys lying around, because we all had toys anyway, like, besides G.I. Joe stuff, you know? So we'd bring our toys in and line the cubicle walls with them, and people would pick them up and play with them, and pick them up for reference for stuff, or just move them around and have them in different positions you know i was, I was just going to say talking about the about the um the, the office and sort of the environment in there you, you said that you were you were in with uh tim and mike um so tim seeley mike norton mm-hmm. um and and you've continued to be professionally involved with them pretty much ever ever since it, oh, yeah. it looks like i i mean like um i still talk to mike well mike usually i talk to weekly uh, except for recently, because my work schedule has just been so crazy, I've been out of it. But um, I still talk to Mike a lot. I work with Tim on stuff. I still let her like hack slash books when they come out and various other things. I 
I let her two books for him right now that are coming out through Vault. So, I, you know, I still hear from him pretty regularly. Not like it was when we were all together, but still in touch. And, that. and then Josh, not so much. I see him at con- conventions and stuff, and, you know, that's about it early these days. Um, Sean Dove, I still talk to because he's in the studio with Mike. He was a uh, part of the art department in, in the later part of Devil's Do era. Yeah, I, re- I remember seeing Sean Dove's name in the in the credits. It wasn't so I don't think it was ever particularly clear from the credits what it what his role was. What what sort of role did did he have at Devil's Do? Uh, by the end, he was the art director. Originally came in as an intern, I think, and then he got hired on as part of the art department. Um, just doing uh, working with the art director for various things, you know, including like prepping files for print and stuff like that production stuff and then uh like i said eventually i think by the last issues of america elite and I, don't, I don't remember how long or anything but he was there actually the art director at the time he did a lot of the design work for the books right uh, um like the inner stuff like the ifcs and the stuff you know stuff like that sorry what's an ifc oh uh, inside front cover oh right okay yeah can you talk about lettering becoming a comic book letterer because that is a that's a particular it's like anyone can letter who has the software but lettering is a skilled art form because you have to be a designer and have a sense of typography yeah it's a bit of design work and kind of you know depending on what you're how far you're going into it as a letterer sometimes there's actual like art involved because you have to draw the forms i became a letterer accidentally <laughs> i had lettered before formerly becoming a letterer like i said I'd, sometimes I, I would letter stuff like in the early days of devils do like if if we had to split a book up to get it done like i would do part of it or something and i had lettered a we did a, a collection of trauma stories stories based in the trauma movie universe and i had done a story in there where I, I wrote and lettered it and that was the first thing i probably actually had credit for i think lettering and that would have been around 06 ish i guess and then once i got laid off from devils do and they moved to their third offices. Wait, wait, sorry. Can I pause? Can you go back sure. even earlier? So who who taught you to letter? How do you connect it with uh, like working in Macromedia Flash because you're already sitting at a computer doing creative stuff? Well, I mean, I... okay, so I need to define comic book lettering as sort of a subset of the overall art of lettering. If you get, because I mean, there's, Different kinds of letter, like yeah, like like a like a sign painter. Sign or, painters or hand lettering or logo designers do stuff with letters and stuff, you know. Um, so it's it's again, it's in the design field. I so I, I had been working with letters and stuff off and on, working with you know Flash and stuff. Um, not comic book lettering, but working with letter forms and sometimes uh, I I would design logos for stuff, bands and things like that. I remember designing a. Cobra Law logo for a poster we did. Yeah, it was it was just a letter form logo, but it was like all kind of organic-y looking with veins and stuff in it, I remember. So yeah, I, I'd been working with letters up to that point. Uh, nobody really taught me. Like, I, I didn't uh, go to like a lettering school or have a lettering mentor, per se. When I finally took up the lettering of comics, I... Looked at online resources for stuff, digital webbing and stuff like that, um, where they had forums with people talking about working. I got the Comicraft book, (laughs) 
And I had I already had like the Marvel and DC books that had lettering sections in them. But I, I, I'm trying to remember. I think those mostly dealt with hand lettering, how to space and use an Eames guide and stuff like that. Which I still have an Eames guide. But um, So I was self-taught with the help of online information and what books there were available. That's how I got into it. And also having like in some, I already had design background. So all the way going back to, because I, I actually did some hand lettering back in high school because I was in a commercial art program in my last two years of high school that taught me how to do like ad layouts. And uh, I was, the school I was in there was right on the cusp of that, where things started switching to computer stuff and digital stuff. So I was taught more traditional methods, hand methods of stuff, using like RubyLith and Zipatone and stuff like that, and having to, um, you know, if you wanted lettering, you drew the lettering. You didn't have a computer and print it out kind of thing. You know? Did you design any logos for Devil's Do? I did. Like I said, I did that Cobra Law thing we did for the poster, but I don't think that ever got used anywhere other than that. But I mean, like the, like, I mean, maybe not Voltron or GI Joe, but any of the aftermath stuff or any of the. I think most of that was actually Sean and. Oh, why am I blanking on the guy who was the graphic designer at the time? Uh, Evan, Evan Salt. Which okay. interesting sidebar on that? He was the drummer for a band called Harvey Danger in the nineties. Huh. Uh, oh, who had a a flagpole sitter was like their flagpole big... sitter. Yeah. Yeah, he was the drummer in that video and stuff. You know? But he wound up being our art director. Uh, I did... I'm trying to remember... Yeah, I would do things... I don't think I did anything that was on like the books. I did redesign the Voltron logo because I didn't like the different sizes of the O's, I remember. And that was the logo we used. So I think I did do the Voltron logo. Or a updated version of the Voltron logo. <laughs> did you get permission? Or did you just do it? I think we just did it. I don't, and I don't think they ever said anything about it. And I'm kind of think in later Voltron cartoons they might have used it <laughs> because it didn't have that. The original Voltron logo, the O, the two O's were different sizes, and um, there was some some other sort of thing in there that that made it feel real unbalanced to me. So when we were working on it, and I think I might have done this logo up early on, like right when we were pitching it or something, even because I was getting the pitch materials together. I was just like, I don't like this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to fix it. So I, I did it, and I think that's just what we started using from then on. This reminds me of the the story where uh, Ryan Hughes, the British designer who's done so many comic book logos and also like the 2013 Ninja Turtles logo. Yeah. Uh, he was hired to redesign the Marvel logo, I think 15 years ago, just like white letters in the red rectangle. Mm -hmm. And all he did was very slightly adjust all the curves and angles because <laughs> they were off. Right. But also that it's, uh, oh, shoot, what's the, uh, who's the designer? Who's the famous designer in the 70s? He was going to redesign the Superman logo. Um, and he's like, for DC, and he's like, nope, it's perfect. <laughs> I, I think like, I remember that story, but I can't remember who the designer was. It probably wasn't Saul Bass. I think I think it is. Uh, anyway, um, anyway, listeners, if you're interested in a lot more information on comic book logos, go to the website of comic book letterer and logo designer Todd Klein. Yeah, lots of great stuff you can nerd out on there. He's got a wealth of information. Yeah. Speaking of uh, nerding out, since we're talking about letter forms and lettering and uh, things that aren't GI Joe, 
uh, Jana and the Impossible Monsters. Yeah. What's it like lettering a book uh, with... All right, so Chris Somney's sound effects are always mostly drawn as part of the art? On that book? Yeah, they're all they're all baked in the art. Yeah. Okay. And uh, at that book, I don't want to say this, is really easy because there's... Sometimes there are pages and pages and pages of nothing but art. <laughs> so, you know, I come in on a 22-page book. You know, I might letter 10 of them or something like that, you know. So, And even those 10 don't have a lot of stuff in them. I can bring this back to G.I. Joe. Hey, everyone, remember, there is a letterer for issue 21, Silent Interlude of G.I. Joe, because there's lettering on page one. Yeah. Uh, man, I remember, I mean, this is probably everybody's story when you bring up that issue. But yeah, I just remember getting that issue and just being like, what the hell? This is awesome. <laughs> you know? I mean, probably in that order. First was confusion. And then like my eyes probably just got real big. And I'm like, this is awesome. Fortunately, <laughs> the, the cover gives you a hint. Well, yeah. There's there's also lettering on Destro's monitor as well. Ah, there you go. Uh, and apparently that was all it's... accidental. Like that wasn't supposed to be a silent issue. Uh, yes, we have we have spoken to uh, Hama, and he is on the record about where that that comes from. Um, Mark, I'm not sure if the lettering on Destro's helmet and the monitor. I think that might be. Oh, it might be drawn. Might be. Yeah, oh. I think that might be in the art and not uh, in the in the lettering because Hama, for breaking down that issue, Hama had done lettering. Yeah, and did do a little lettering after that for like an issue of Conan or something. Yeah, though. I uh... um. Uh, Crank, uh, what is the end of the story for you and Devils Do? How do you mean? Just how it all came down at the end? Yeah, yeah. How? What? What was happening at the end, and wh- what did you do, and where did you go? Oh, okay. Um, sorry, I have to think because sometimes I, I, I remember stuff, but I don't remember it in the right order. <laughs> you know? Especially when when it was like chaotic, like it was towards the end there. Because I just well, remember... uh, here's here's a different question. How was it chaotic? Well, okay, so I think we knew that we weren't going to get the license back. So it's not like we were completely shocked when it came down to time to renew it, and we couldn't. But we had a bit of a scramble there because at the same time that was our we had kind of overextended ourselves. I think as a company, we we were trying to launch too many different things, um, throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall to see what would stick. And um, that was fine as long as we had a steady income off of stuff. And we had a couple of of things. It wasn't just G.I. Joe, because, I mean, we were doing, like, Family Guy and stuff like that, too. Um, But, and there was something weird where Devils Do splintered off into a couple of different sub-companies. I can't remember exactly what was going on with that. There was, like, a sister company called Kunoichi, which was supposed to be more of an advertising development kind of thing or IP development kind of thing. Something like that. And I don't remember. They were a separate company, but part of us used our resources and were staffed in our offices as well as us. So it was kind of a weird thing there towards the end. But um, so anyway, when G.I. Joe, when we knew, finally when it was just like, okay, we're, we're going to lose this. We're not going to have this as like our big money maker anymore, our steady money maker. Um, Josh made the decision to move into a smaller office and downsize the employees and stuff. So I remember those last days, there was a lot of, God, we threw away a shit ton of comic stock. I remember 
because there wasn't any space for it at the new um, new offices that they were moving to. You mean stuff you might have sold through the website, actual printed issues? Right, like back issues of stuff. I remember a lot of that just got thrown straight in the dumpster because couldn't move it anywhere, you know? Uh, I think employees wound up with stuff that was getting pitched if they wanted it kind of stuff, you know? Uh, like, I, I had chairs, like, just chairs from our office, or um, our conference room, because they were going to get thrown out, and they were like, you know, anybody want them? I'm like, sure, I'll take them. I can use them in the dining room or whatever. Stuff like that, you know? And it, it was just kind of chaos, and then between that and the move, and even though I, I had gotten laid off, I was retained as a contractor for a period to help with the setting up the new network and stuff at the new offices and to kind of transition stuff over. Because um, at that point, it, basically if it was techie stuff in there, I was the one doing it. Uh, I was helping set up the phones, get, get, like keeping the phones, because we had like a weird high-end digital phone system kind of thing, <laughs> you know. Yeah, if it was techie, I was I was doing it by the end, and there was just so much going on. And once I got laid off, I spent a, you know I spent some time helping them switch over at the other office, and that's how I got into lettering, actually, because the sister company, partner company that Kunuichi or whatever, they would do things like get to the organized vanity comic book things, and by you know vanity, I just mean somebody that's doing it for their own shits and giggles. And they put together this book called Pogrom, and they need a letter. I happened to be in the office that day, and they are like, who are you going to call? And I'm like, hey, uh, I'll do it, because <laughs> I just happened to be there, you know? And um, I was looking for a way. I knew I was I was really tired of IT at the time. I, I was just burnt out. I didn't want to deal with websites anymore, because the, they're thankless, never-ending jobs. Like... A website is never done, you know? And I was just tired of it, and I was looking to make a change, and so I volunteered to letter this comic book, and that's how I got that. And then, because I was there, that's how I wound up lettering the last few issues of G.I. Joe, and I think I, I lettered one of the Storm Shadow issues, the miniseries Hama was working on. Huh. Uh, I think I did, like, issue five or something like that. Yeah, So and, and then I started lettering Hackslash, and, and that's how I got rolling, but even at that, like in that early period, Chicago was a super expensive place to live. Uh, it might not be the most expensive place to live in, in the States, but it's really high. And I was paying like nine, you know, and this is in 2007. I was paying like 900 a month for a, a one bedroom apartment kind of thing. I, I didn't want to get roommates cause I had had some pretty bad experiences just a few years prior with the roommates. And, um, I just realized that I, I liked Chicago. I used to go visit Chicago a lot before I moved there, especially back in my teens. We'd hop in a van, drive from Cincinnati, because it's only like three and a half, four hours away or something like that from Cincinnati. So, you know, we'd hop in a van and go to Chicago for a weekend, sleep in the van and just hang out and stuff. And so I, I was pretty familiar with Chicago already. Turned out I wasn't so good at living there. <laughs> so once I got laid off, and, and even though I was... Doing the, the lettering thing, it, there wasn't enough of that to be enough income to live in Chicago right away at that time. And my lease was coming up on my apartment. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going back to Cincinnati because I can, you know, I can live there for like a third of the price. <laughs> and as long as I've got internet, it doesn't matter where I live. I can do my work. You know? So that's that all happened around 07, 08. And so I was, I was back here, I think, when I was still lettering or when I was lettering G.I. Joe issues. 
I'm pretty sure. Nice. I don't know. I don't know if that actually answered your question though. I keep saying I keep saying that today, but you know, it it did. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was just very weird there at the end because at that point I had been working with Josh and working on GI Joe stuff since 2000. You know, so that was already like seven years of my life that I had been doing this stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, and then it all just kind of like poof went away. So. And, you know, we had a bunch of employees at that time. Um, I, I'm trying to remember who all was there. Because we had, like, two editors, and uh, we had an in-house letterer. We had uh, another art guy. We had the art director. We had a secondary art position. Tim was there doing whatever he was doing at the time. Because he had, you know, he had different roles as the company evolved as well. Josh, Susan, we had a couple of people working the web store stuff. And then, you know, again, we had those other people that shared the office space with us that were part of that sister company. So it went from being a, like a small DIY scrappy group of people that spent all their time together to being like a regular office, but bigger or not bigger than a regular office, but, you know, bigger than what we were and more like a regular office kind of thing. And so trying to get all that organized, moved over into a smaller new space that, you know, also while dealing with the emotional baggage of getting laid off and, and realizing that, you know, this happy family you've had for several years isn't going to be around anymore, you know. That was just all kind of very strange at the end. I don't have it to ha- to hand, but your own podcast has been going quite a long time. I want to say from memory that it it's dates back to, to probably a similar time as when you left Devil's Due. Is that right? Uh, prior. We started at the end of 2005. Wow. So- so you're def- you're you're an early adopter again. You're sort of a pioneer of podcasting. We were, I mean, I guess we were one of the first comic book related podcasts. There were, I remember there were a couple around. Um, Word Balloon launched just before us. John Suntress, he's that dude's a great guy. We hung out with him a lot in Chicago. Um, there was a, what was it? Comic Geek Speak was another one. Uh, they had been around for a while, and then there was. We were trying to be more like there was a, a group of comic artists in Canada, I think, or something. I can't remember what that was, but they they had a pod, like a brief, short-lived podcast, and um, we were trying to be more like them, where it was just casual, not necessarily focused on certain, any certain topics, just kind of comic yeah, book hangout and hanging out, chat, right? And um, our ours devolved into just it's basically just how I keep up with the, my Chicago people. <laughs> Because I don't get to see them anymore, so I I talk to them weekly if I can, you know. If you want to talk to two guys about GI Joe on your podcast, Crank, I know. Really? Two guys who would. I don't think that would help your numbers any. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. You know, I, I'm I know Mark. We're... Mark, <laughs> we were off the hook. <laughs> yeah, I, I know there were. I know there are people that listen to our our podcast because um, occasionally they write in. But like we don't we don't really have any specific focus, and, and as far as a podcast goes, if you're we're like the Seinfeld, I guess, of podcasts. We don't have a point, you know, which is fine for us. Like we don't care, but it means that you know we'll, we don't really rank very well anywhere. We don't retain. <laughs> you have to be, I, you have to be looking for something like us to actually want to listen to us more than once, kind of thing. I, your, I guess your your main measure of success is that you're talking to your friends regularly. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I figure if I'm going to talk to him anyway, might as well keep the podcast going. Because we used to be more like a standard thing where we had segments of the show. We actually had the show divided up in the spots, and we'd talk about right. different subjects on things. We'd plan it out ahead of time. Now it's it's just stream of consciousness for an hour, and that's fine. You know, like you limit yourselves to an hour. What a great idea! We try to. <laughs> I mean, it, it depends. Sometimes we've gone for like two hours at a time. Sometimes we've gone for like forty eight minutes and stopped because we were just like, ah, that's all we got to talk about right now. But yeah, um, I used to be a lot better at editing, where I, I would actually edit. <laughs> you know. I'd trim out all my ums and yas and, and trim out pauses, uncomfortable pauses, and I would, uh, yeah, that would go, right? And if things if we were rambling about something, I would definitely edit things down to make them more concise and whatever I could do, you know. I, I would In the early days, I actually edited stuff. Um, now, I trim off the front and back to, you know, and then I, I usually do a little bit of time stretching to make it fit uh, an even time. And that's all I do. I don't. I, Mark, I, Mark, I think you should cut this part where Crank is talking about his, <laughs> his fine tuning, no longer fine tuning his editing, because our listeners might realize that if you are doing less of it, then they'll they'll be disappointed. Anyway. Well, well, I I spend a I spend a ridiculous amount of time trying to at least at least hone down the uh, uncomfortable pauses and the erms and the tripping over the words, even if uh, even if a lot a lot of the content gets left in. But that's because it's all solid gold. You um, know, uh, uh, just before we got on together, I was uh, photoshopping a photograph of me holding some uh, Devil's Due GI Joe comics, and I'll use that as the like promotional image when, in a couple days on Facebook, I post a link to the episode where we're issue where we're reading those issues, and I spent a lot of time photoshopping those photos. <laughs> Because invariably, we take the photo of me standing in front of my refrigerator, and I'm not near a light. And like, it's like the exposure on my half of my face is good, but the covers are too dark. So I lasso those in Photoshop and and a whole bunch you know, of dodging Instagram and, and curves. Uh, you know, it's like, well, I'm smiling and my teeth don't look very bright. Maybe I should brighten my teeth. So I think what we're saying, the division of labor here is that I, I organize the podcasts, re- make sure they're recorded download and edit them, upload them, promote them, and then Tim takes a photo of himself uh, and then edits that for a week. If Mark, if you were where I was, you could definitely be in the photo with me. <laughs> Thank you. You could always Photoshop them into the photo with you. you know. I'm already spending so much time <laughs> Photoshopping myself. Right, right. Understood. So, so nowadays, crank is is lettering. Is that uh, is that a full time gig, or have you got all sorts of uh, multitudes of side hustles along the way as well? Uh, lettering is my main money maker. I, I do things occasionally, like design work, time to time. Um, kind of got out of doing like logos for other people because I found them frustrating. Um, that kind of design work kind of tends to drag on a bit, especially if the client doesn't know. They know. They only know they don't want what you're showing them, but they don't know what they do want, kind of thing. I I can speak uh, from firsthand experience on this. Uh, we <laughs> hired a wonderful designer to redo the logo for my store, and I loved everything he had done. And I couldn't wait to work with him. And he sent a batch of amazing new logos for my comic book store, and none of them worked. They were all amazing. They just didn't fit. And he did a second batch and a third batch. And I showed them to a couple trusted uh, allies, and they all said. These look great. These don't quite fit. 
And it turned out I was that client who didn't want to completely redo it. I just wanted like a small revision to the existing logo. And I, so a year later, I found a different designer and I said, I don't know what I want, but this is what the old logo is. Maybe you can do something with it. And he did a small revision to the original logo. And I thought, that's what I always wanted. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> that's all it takes, you know? Just change the O a bit and you'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the two O's in Hub Comics um, were different sizes. And so I had this new designer. Uh, and interestingly, all the like Netflix animated specials featuring the mm -hmm. Hub Comics logo have been using that new. Never mind. It's a call. It's a, it's a callback. <laughs> yeah, for me, that's that's why I uh, I found that frustrating. I, I Even though I was trained back in high school to do like... When you approach a design project, you're supposed to do like 20 thumbnails and uh, you know start eliminating stuff and then do roughs on the 10 you've got left and then start eliminating stuff. And I'm like, man, look, no. If I got an idea, I got an idea. This is what I'm going to do. If you don't like it, you only have to use it and we're done. <laughs> you know, but like most clients don't like that approach. So now I just do, if I do logo stuff, it's just for myself or like personal projects. People I know pretty well and kind of know what they want, you know. My friend draws uh, comics for publishers and learned this early on. He, if he's doing a cover, he would send in four thumbnails and invariably the editor would choose the least interesting thumbnail. <laughs> so we started to send three and he try, and then he sort of shifted to trying to send two and tries to just send one now, like, like the good one yeah. or the one that he wants to draw. <laughs> that was the other thing is that, you know, you learn early on, don't ever include anything that you don't think you might want to actually be happy with putting your name on. Because invariably the client is going to pick the one you dislike the most. And that gets frustrating after a while. So yeah, I, I guess that all just goes to say, I don't do a whole much, whole lot of a uh, commercial design work anymore. <laughs> Mostly it's just because I know what to expect out of lettering kind of. And, how many how many books have you typically got on on the go? Oh man, last year just about killed me. Um, I'm still like I haven't gotten enough sleep after that. I, that was my fault. I overbooked, so that 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 was an abnormal year. You know, I do a few a week, probably a couple a week at least. Uh, it depends on the time of the year. Usually January and February are pretty slow. I think because there's a rush at the end of the prior year to get things done into the presses before everything shuts down for the holidays and whatnot. And um, I, I think that affects like the scheduling, like because there's already stuff that's going to be coming out in those months, so they don't necessarily need things to be lettered in those months. So yeah, it it varies. There's no real set thing. Usually, I'm doing at least one book a week, sometimes three or four. You know, and that translates to I don't know, maybe a half a dozen, half a dozen to twelve titles a month sometimes. And, and then you know that depends on if I'm working on an OGN or something. That's a whole different thing too, because I did like three, four. I did, I did, <laughs> I did multiple OGNs on top of like my regular monthly work last year, which was part of my mistake. But OGNs are weird because like when you when you're doing a monthly book, you can go, oh, well, I've got this many issues out, or I've got all these titles out. But then for when you're going straight to an OGN, you're just doing 120 pages for one thing, kind of. So it doesn't feel like it weighs as much. From a, a you know from an impressive standpoint, well, it's just one title versus like all these other titles that I've done, you know, even though it's a two hundred page book or whatever. Yeah, it's one credit on your resume. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I went back and I looked. I actually looked because um, I, I was looking at old files again. I looked at the stuff I did, the GI Joe books I lettered. Yeah, man, that was rough. <laughs> Were you not a good letterer in 2005? Is that what you're saying? Uh, 
You've only gotten better. I've definitely gotten tighter. It was. It's not the worst lettering I've ever seen, honestly, even though it was pretty rough. But I, I can definitely, I look back on it now, I'm like, yeah, I, I, that, I wouldn't do that now. That <laughs> wouldn't slide. Okay, so yeah. since, we've, since we've gotten a little bit into the nerdy weeds about lettering and design, mm-hmm. uh, what makes good lettering? What makes not good lettering? Uh, I, that's, again, subjective. But I would say something that I would tell anybody is to be consistent about what you're doing. Can can you give a, an example? Because that's for someone who who's listening to this podcast, but that doesn't really notice lettering, maybe doesn't even notice good lettering or bad lettering. Okay, well, like, if they're listening to this podcast, they're probably reading G.I. Joe, right? Or they might be re, revisiting The Devil's Do G.I. Joe, and so they might see the books I did. We'll use those as examples. You can tell, uh, like, my word stacks, which is just, you know, how the, the lines of text form from top to bottom. I mean, you- I mean, like like four four words on the top line, five on the next, five on the next, four on the bottom. If it's four lines, like that kind of thing. Right. My basic word stacks, which is that, yeah, the way you just explained it, um, aren't terrible in there. I don't think. I, I didn't leave any kind of weird gaps. Like sometimes you'll see uh, in the middle line, the middle line will be a lot shorter than the lines above and below it, and it'll leave these parking spots kind of in there. And sometimes that's fine. Sometimes that just looks really weird. But I, I didn't really have too much of that. My main problems on those were um, my tail widths were very inconsistent, where the tail meets the balloon. Some people like fat tails. Some people like the really skinny tails. Some like them more straight than curved, et cetera, et cetera. And like, and that's fine, but you kind of got to stay consistent with it for to, whatever your style is. You know, it's not style if, if it's different from balloon to balloon. It's just sloppy. The space between the letters and the balloons. Uh, some balloons are tighter than others. Um, so that's, that was just real inconsistent stuff like that. Mostly, it, um, some of it was placement where I was looking at it and like, I, I, I actually could have laid that out better kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, if you're looking at, if you're looking at those last issues of America's elite, that's me lettering and that's me not really great at it. It's competent, competent enough. It doesn't, I don't think it looks terrible. Like it doesn't throw you out of the book, but it, it's definitely not good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But of course, at, at that point, that was that was me starting the letter, you know. Right. Do you have favorite letterers in comics? More designing people, probably. Like, do you, do you like, have favorite designers? In I mean, like we were talking about Ryan Hughes. He's re- okay. he's really good. I, I really like Russ Wooten. If anyone's wondering how you spell Ryan Hughes, that that's R I A N. Right. Um, Russ Wooten is really good. He was the uh, like the original letterer in Walking Dead and stuff. From a design standpoint, like I really like Nate Piekos. He does a lot of stuff for um, Dark- like Allred. Yeah, Allred and Dark Horse and stuff like that. And he's also a, like one of the two major comic book font designers. Oh, uh, is he Blambot? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he yeah. also just put out a book last year on a new guide to lettering book. We have it at my store. Oh. <laughs> and in fact, I saw someone carrying it around in my store and I sort of intercepted. And I said, oh, what a great book. Do you know about this? And the person said, um, it was something like, oh, I'm in a fine arts program and I'm taking a painting class and this looked really interesting. And very nicely, I talked this person out of buying the book because it was not at all what this person needed. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, it's like, oh, this is about like design and computer lettering for comic books. Right. It's like, oh. But on another occasion, someone did buy that book. Who was? It's like, do you have a book on lettering? Yes, we do. 
because the because the comic craft one is out of print and the dc comics guide that one is out of print yeah even if that comic craft one were still in print it's it's pretty dated now i, I revisited it last year after i got done reading nate's book because i was just curious to like just see how it how that comic craft one held up and it's really dated just the techniques and stuff i mean it came out in mid 2000s you know yeah also it, it, it's a it's like 48 or 64 pages it's like a prestige format special so like it is technically a book but it is it's not a like hefty book you hold in your hand with a spine you can see from afar yeah they, they were definitely given outline basically just outlining the basics of it um i'm trying to think of who else like like i said nate's besides being a good letter like he's a good designer as well uh so is russ wooten uh because he, he generally designed a lot of comic book covers and stuff like the co- cover dressing like the actual design of the cover yeah i, I mean there, there's the class of people like we were talking about todd klein ben oda was an old comic letter he was really good john workman of course yeah man and I'm, I'm, i mean my con- most of my contemporaries that are working on mainstream books right now i can't think of any of them that are bad this this is a good observation because when you know when when coloring met computers in comic books in the early 90s mm-hmm. anyone who could figure out photoshop could color a comic book and it didn't mean that anyone should right some and of that looked thus, terrible and and the same thing was true with lettering you know it's like it's like you know the printing press gets invented a few centuries ago and now anyone with paper and ink can be a published author but maybe not everyone should be <laughs> and there's a not even a minimum level there's sort of a like a moderate like there's a there's a median level of skill and style across all of the big publishers and most of the like medium publishers and plenty of the small publishers in comics where a lot of books just look good yeah you know the, the the spine the logo the dressing the inside front cover where the credits are you know any any sort of extra stuff in the back whether you know whether it's an issue or a, a book uh, so one one could spend a long time just listing designers and letterers who are doing great work now sure i've i mean i i still see some wonky stuff here and there but i don't generally see wonky stuff from people who do it regularly i guess mm. is how i'm trying to say this like the people who actually do more than one or two books a year or something, you know? Right. There, there, there are a couple of publishers every month that go through previews, the diamond catalog. And there are a couple of publishers where like the publishers are uh, not in the back half of previews, but uh, the, the, the medium and big publishers are designing their own pages mm. in previews and then handing a file over to diamond to actually publish previews. And, Oh yeah, uh, I, I remember publishers. Sean Sean Dove was dis- responsible for all of our previews designed. Okay, and again, to our listeners, we mean I mean the catalog that's called previews. I don't mean the generic right. notion of a preview. And um, and there are a couple of publishers where their their layouts in previews are really busy and crowded. And every month, that's my sort of first impression of them, and I always think. I'm a little less excited about ordering these books <laughs> or maybe I'm not going to order any of these books. And there's, there's a chicken and egg thing here because they, they may not sell, but you know, like the, the design ethos of this publisher is like too much is never enough. And you know, like lots of text and it's very small and like lots of images crammed together and lots of different fonts. Presentation uh, and, counts. You know? Yeah. And I think, 
like I was always struck, you know, like uh, two years, three years, five years into image. I was always struck by how different top cows design looked mm-hmm. than the other of the six image houses. Like there was so much like fancy to like inside front covers at top cow, like font treatment. And there was a lot of like, I don't want to say gilded, but there was a sense that like things could be like shiny and gold and sort of fancy. And some of that still sticks around 20 years later. And I'm, this is not good or bad. It's just like really interesting to me. I remember ours, um, back in the odds, ours were, ours were basically designed like around our, what our company looked like, like our company materials kind of thing. Um, what do you mean? Uh, you know, like when we would do devils do presentations of stuff, like our letterheads, business cards, right, logo work, stuff like that. You know, uh, so our our previews were all based around that kind of thing, if, as I recall. Anyway, hmm. like it's been a while. Branding <laughs> approach. Uh, sure. Since we mentioned aftermath, uh, I have very much appreciated. So in the issues of GI Joe, we've been reading recently. Uh, we are seeing ads for the Aftermath books, oh. even though they didn't last very long. Yeah. And I very much appreciate how the Aftermath logo is so similar to the Devil's Due logo. Yeah. Uh, but, it, but it's but its its own thing, and it, it says its own thing about what it is. But it's still a circular shape with red and black and white, and it still reads graphically. And I think that's just neat. I think that was the intent to just make it recognizable as part of our line of stuff, our brand of stuff, but still not just, you know, branded as devils do kind of thing. I just remembered something else because we were talking about logos earlier. So when we did the first Joe Transformers crossover, there was that Decepticon Cobra logo, that combo. Oh yeah. And that's on the back cover of a bunch of the issues. Yeah. And for a lot, I, actually, I just saw one last year, but for a number of years after that came out, man, I saw that sticker on so many cars. It was crazy. <laughs> it was just all over the place, but that was a, that was Mike Norton designed that, which I, I, I don't think he ever got actual credit for that. <laughs> like, you know, but yeah, that was a Mike Norton thing. He came up with that and it, it seems so simple in, in retrospect, like, oh, well, let's just put the Cobra logo in there, you know, or the, actually, I think it was the Cobra logo with the Decepticon logo inside the mouth. Was that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Really effective. I'm, I'm curious if these stickers that you're seeing on cars for a long time, if those are official stickers that Devils do licensed and sold and made money on. Oh, probably not. No. Bootlegs, because part of the story of Playlock <laughs> before Devils do right. is working at a company that was licensing shirts and not licensing shirts. Based of his own medicine. Here's another funny logo thing. And, and, but to answer your question, yeah, they were probably all bootlegs. <laughs> I, I, either that or I don't know. I mean, I guess technically it was the property of Hasbro. So they, they, they could have farmed out the material to whoever was licensing their stickers or whatever. Yeah. That's okay. That's a good point. Um, that's entirely possible too. I just remember, like I said, for a number of years, I saw that sticker all over the place. And then, not so much, but, you know, I still see it every now and then. And I think about it, I'm like, eh, Mike did that. <laughs> you know? um, another funny logo thing. So, of course, when you're doing branding stuff, it's important that you're, you've got style guides, you know, so you can properly represent the material, right? And, and, and logos and stuff are supposed to be reproduced as they are, because logos are trademarked, copyrighted, both? No, trademarked. A logo is like a reserved thing and stuff like that, I think. In a case of 
early G.I. Joe from the pitch stuff, you know, we, we all we had was um, we didn't have materials that came straight from Hasbro. We didn't have a style guide or, a, a, you know, a series Bible or anything like that. So we were if if we needed stuff, we would just make it up ourselves. And early on with the pitch stuff, I didn't have a proper Cobra logo. So I, I made my own. Right. But I, I never liked how the teeth were separate from the top of the mouth. In, in the official logo. Because, you know, you've got your open mouth and then there's a line between that and, like, where I guess the lip and the teeth, top of the teeth. So I had closed that up and made the teeth more pointy and stuff. <laughs> Basically just, you know, and I think I, I added, did something different with the eyes and stuff too. I made it look more sinister or something in my head, you know. But, um, they, Hasbro, no, they, they, they weren't having any of that, like, once we actually started going. Like, anything that was official had to have the correct logo on there. But still, you would see stuff pop up that was more like the way I did it. And I, I don't know, I mean, that, that was never an official thing, but... Because uh, I, I was looking at something... What, there's the cover that's got, like, Cobra Commander and Storm Shadow on the front. It's, like, majorly yellow background, I think. Some Something in the early issues. Yeah, I mean. um, it was something Steve Kurth, I think, drew the cover for. And um, if you look at the logo on his chest, it's you know that gap's closed up too and stuff. <laughs> Which I don't. Again, I don't know if Hasbro just didn't notice or what, but they probably would have called that. I think because it's it's not like the correct logo, you know. But they they were always really or usually pretty on on the ball about that because it's branding kind of thing, you know. I just always think it's funny because I had I I had made up my own. I was working as a printer at the time when I first made up my logo for personal use, and uh, so I had, I had printed up a bunch of just Cobra stickers myself. <laughs> I never sold them or anything. I think I just gave them to people. I used one of them for something Halloween costume. I can't remember, but yeah, that's just a, one of those weird memories, GI Joe memories. I thought when you mentioned uh, Transformers versus G.I. Joe, I thought you were going to tell us that you were the person who, who designed the versus, the V.S. <laughs> for, that, for that logo treatment on the cover of that first miniseries. I wish. That was probably Mike, too, actually. Because okay. he, he was the art director at the time. Right. Or co-art director. I, I, we had titles, I guess, from the get-go, sort of. But I don't really remember them. It was more like we just had jobs because again we kind of took on multiple things early on. I don't really remember people having specific titles until later, like the second office space, and when we got, like I said, we got a little more corporate-y structured kind of thing. Um, the cover that you're talking about is issue six, which is a Mike Zek cover with Cobra Commander on the front, Storm Shadow jumping behind, and kind of like orangey, yellowy uh, oh, okay, background. Yeah. And it's that got, was, yeah, the Cobra Commander chest logo and actually on his head and on Storm Shadow behind it, it's all got an integrated, yeah, fangs on the Cobra. It's not the uh, official sort of Hasbro <laughs> Cobra logo. Yeah, I forgot that was a Zek cover. Man, we were able to get some really good artists to do, like we had Mike Zek on there, you know, we had the, the J. Scott Campbell covers and just... We kind of, I think we kind of stumbled on Beck to do those paintings. I think he had submitted something, and we just looked at him and thought, this is really cool. And, I, you know, we had a good solid run of him doing back covers, like, what, 20-something issues, I think, uh, he did back, plus some of the other, like, supplemental materials. A few. And 
uh, he was just a really good painter. He was an awesome dude, too. Uh, I mean, I don't think he's dead or anything. He's probably still an awesome dude. I just haven't talked to him in a long time. Uh, he's doing uh, one of the three covers for this year's Overstreet, uh, official Overstreet Price Guide to Comic Book Values. Sweet. I'm glad he's still uh, He's painting. A, it's a it's a Golden Age comics character. Yeah, he um, I mean, he, he had done a lot of painter work outside of comics. That's hmm. was his main thing. But I, I think he was just looking to get into doing comics work as like he either liked it or it was you know, an extra market for him, but uh, really accomplished painter though. He's, he's very good. I like his stuff a lot. I think I still have, we used to, okay. So with his paint work, um, he would, he lived here in Cincinnati and um, he would do his paint work and he'd shoot his own. They were like four by six transparencies, I guess, not transparencies. They were chromes, chromes, They, they essentially like positive negatives, you know, yeah, it's it's a it's a large format or medium format. It's like the master. It's not a ne- yeah. It's not a negative. It's the positive. It's a slide. It's basically like an oversized slide. Yeah, yeah, exactly for, for reproduction. Um, and so he he would shoot those and he would send those to us in Chicago, and we had to buy this loud, slow, <laughs> crazy, uh, overpriced scanner. I remember at the time it was a Microtech, I think, but it was the only thing we we had to have that scanner to scan in artwork anyway. Because uh, it was the only large bed scanner we could get, like affordably at the time. Something that you could fit an entire uh, eleven seventeen sheet on without having to scan it in parts and stitch it back together again. But it also had a transparency adapter that would shine light through the backside, so you could scan stuff like that. And um, the problem was, is I remember this because we had to do the way the scanner software worked. It wasn't very accurate color wise. And it would kind of um, desaturate his paintings once we would scan them. So we'd have to go back in and, and kind of sit there and look at these oversized slides, like up to a light you know, or on a light box or something. And then like look over at the monitor and try to match the colors, like slide the saturation knobs and, and get the, the right match for it. So it would print okay. And even then, sometimes stuff came out looking kind of chalky in print sometimes, I remember. Um, I still got some of those somewhere. I think I have the... Destro, and I might have the Snake Eyes and the Storm Shadow. The actual the Chromes, yeah. Wow. I think because I, I, I think they were wound up in my files. Something. I, I think I was in charge of storing them or something, and then they just came home with me when I got laid off. I don't even know if I realized it until much later. But uh, yeah, I still got. I might. I think I have the Dreadnought one too, the Zartan one. Uh, actually, I might have most of them. <laughs> now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> wow. Well, these are, uh, I don't mean monetarily valuable. I mean, these are valuable sort of in that they're important in that if a publisher wanted to republish the Devil's Due era, uh, that those those chromes are either a better source to reproduce that artwork, though, you know, it'd have to be scanned and like turned into a TIFF or whatever, or a PDF. Or if the files... If the like PDFs to print new editions of the Devil's Due material that went to IDW after Devil's Due was no longer making comics, if those files got lost or don't exist or something, it's like you'd go back to an earlier step, which is these Chromes. So I don't know if the next publisher of GI Joe Comics definitely wants these, but in in a in a general sort of historical sense, these are important. 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose they presumably, you know, Beck sold his work, so I don't know if he has any of those originals left himself or not. So I guess these would be the handiest way of reproducing them, like tracking them down and reproducing. And those IDW reprints of the Devil's Due era stuff, did they reprint Beck's work, Mark? I don't know off the top of my head, to be honest. I didn't know. Uh, if, I think, like, think they... sometimes, yeah, sometimes some of the supplementary materials were a bit shortcut, so uh, I wouldn't, I, I don't have those IDW reprints, so I couldn't. I'm sure they probably didn't put a whole lot of effort into it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I guess there must have been enough reason or incentive for them to do it at all, like monetary incentive. But I, I'm honestly surprised they bothered putting out collections of our stuff. Yeah, the the one thing that has never been republished for sure there's i say one thing as, as if i'm being definitive but the, the the most significant thing that's never been published is the snake eyes declassified prologue story that was specifically created for the uh, snake eyes declassified trade paperback by hammer and uh, ron wagner the huh. um, silence prelude i think it's called i wonder why that um I could have been one something weird like we lost the files and or something you know also it, it would it would take an editor at idw to either want to include that yeah or no to <laughs> to or to know that it's out there and if an editor at idw is looking at issues from devil's do and doesn't know that there were pages included only and originally in a graphic novel collection might not know to go look for that. Yeah, I forgot we used to do that sometimes. We'd throw bonus material in the trades to make them more appealing to buy or whatever. I, I mean, not just not just adding in like production work or sketch work. We'd do something like that, like do a new intro to it or something. Yeah, even the supposedly definitive hardcover uh, collection that was put out with lots of extra supplementary elements uh, miss, missed that one out. But uh, never mind, never mind. <laughs> we always raise it every time it comes up. So we've been keeping you quite a long, uh, a long time. Um, any sort of final thoughts, really, on the the Devil's Due um, era before we release you back to the world? I guess I would just say that, yeah, you know, I mean, it's not like we were the the perfect GI Joe incarnation or anything, but I think we we hit as much as we missed. I would, I would think. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's up for people like you to judge, really. I mean, how's it hold up 14 years later, 20 years later for some of it? You know. that, <laughs> was that rhetorical? Well, I mean, I, literally, like, why are you guys reading it? I think I, I uh, heard in one of the earlier interviews, like, you didn't read them at the time, did you? Uh, that was Tim. Yeah, Tim started reading it and it just wasn't wasn't the, wasn't for him, wasn't the, the hammer feel that is that sweet spot. Um, right. I was massively into it at the at the time, but you know, even at the time, I recognised that there was there was some that's you know some some hits, some not you know some some miss, but um, but yeah, I was very enthusiastic for for it as it was coming uh, coming out. As I say, I was slightly addicted to the message boards and stuff, and you know, what was your nickname on the message stuff. boards? Pardon? What was your nickname on the message board? Uh, it was Sparky. Trying to think if I remember you or not. <laughs> yeah, there was a contingent of English people who would sort of leave messages overnight for you guys, and <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I I typically had uh, yeah a sort of little gnome on a computer as my as my avatar, 
someone commented that we were like little uh, sort of fairy tale sort of gnomes who would tinker away overnight on the message boards and they'd find all of this this stuff that we'd written as they come came in in the morning <laughs> do you remember a uh, a poster on the devil's do message board that went by the nickname of roller destro and he had like the his icon was that you know the pimp destro with the leopard collar and stuff I, I don't, but actually, I, I think I know what you're going to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I heard, I listened to your to your um, crankcast where you mentioned this. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I just for anybody that remembers those message boards and remembers Roller Destro, that was Mike Norton. He would come yeah. on and troll and just troll the <laughs> people like for shits and giggles. <laughs> he was the, the quintessential actual troll. He didn't mean any harm or anything. He just did it to be a troll. Like. But um, yeah, to to return to your previous point, I think the reason we're doing it is, I guess, because we're, uh, you know, GI Joe enthusiasts and, and comic, well, and more specifically, GI Joe comic enthusiasts, Fair and uh, and the Devil's Due is a significant era and uh, and is worthy of uh, of you know, revisiting and sort of digging into and sort of rediscovering or in my case having not read it for for 20 almost 20 years and uh and and Tim sort of you know finding a new see, seeing you know seeing what we can find there that 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 sort of still still really holds up and and being sort of objective and, and recognizing that that there was some things that maybe didn't work quite as well as others as yeah. as well but um you know still I think Still, still, uh, you know, it was an amazing uh, accomplishment that that the team put together at, at the time. And uh, uh, I'm where the era. I have, I have taught for many years, and I don't read. I read comics actively, so comics I enjoy and comics that I'm sort of reading, so I know what's new or because I've heard something about it. And I'm always trying to figure out how it works or comparing it to something else that's similar or something that did something better or it's doing something and doing it better. And so to have this whole seven-year era of G.I. Joe comics that I mostly didn't read at the time that I can read and talk about with Mark and sometimes other hosts or guests and uh, words putting too fine a point on it, but to analyze, right, to be critical and to critique I find it all very enriching and and entertaining. Even if I don't like an issue or I don't like a scene or I don't, you know, like a cover, it's G.I. Joe and I'm interested in I'm so interested in G.I. Joe, even the stuff that's not my favorite. And I want to talk about it. That's cool. I, I was yeah, because I was curious because since this isn't canon or anything, it's it's not part of it's not essential, you know. I guess G.I. Joe Extreme is like us, right? Well, I'd I'd say I'd say less like because it's it's a thing unto itself. It's not you know the same characters or attempting to be the same continuity. So so I I sort of see it just as a thing, an experiment to the to the side that you can kind of look at almost in in isolation. I think Tim has got other views about it. <laughs> well, I mean, another way of looking at this is that you know, like canon. I mean, like the the canon of the the TV show. It's like, well, the comic books don't, they're not in canon if you're, if your oh. starting point is the cartoon. Point. Yeah. So it's just all of these stories. 
you know, or the the sort of finger quotes story you get if you read all of the toy file cards. And I guess, uh, yeah, Sigma Six, I guess, isn't in the same universe as regular like RAH or anything. Right. And I, I mean, Sigma Six, I'll be critical here. I find what little of that I've experienced to be sort of generic enough. It doesn't really feel like G.I. Joe, but it is a branded G.I. Joe thing. And I'm sure we will get to it sooner or later in this in this podcast. You know, I mean, if there was, you know, if they were like G.I. Joe coloring books done by, you know, some like licensee that didn't know what it was doing and didn't care. I think there were. Officially, Panini or something? Well, I'm sort of making a joke here. There was like really, really terrible G.I. Joe coloring books. We might we might talk about those on this. Uh, I don't mean if it was just, you know, drawings with no story, but if they're anyway. (laughs) I I gotcha. Uh, I'm interested. You're saying you're saying Devil's Do is really terrible comic books. What I'm saying is I'm interested (laughs) in all of G.I. Joe and what has been. I mean, you know, Mark said it before, I read the first nine issues, 10 issues, and I thought, this is not for me, and I stopped reading it. And I I dipped my toe back in twice, briefly. Hmm. But to be able to get the history with guests like you and and Blaylock, etc., just as when we're reviewing new issues of the IDW series and talking with the people who are drawing them, you know, six months ago, two months ago, a year ago, I get to be like a G.I. Joe researcher, presenter, host, archaeologist. And that's great. Right on. Well, I mean, yeah. yeah with with Mark. With Mark. It's something. Yeah, I, I get it. It's something you guys are really interested in. So it doesn't. You're, you're kind of interested in the entirety of it, I guess. Yeah. Some some we love more than more than others, and you know even the stuff that we love <laughs> the most, we can still be pretty um, you know objective about and and try and uh, try and figure out you know well uh, what it is that we love about it, but also recognize that that there are there are things within it that maybe are still imperfect, and uh, you know things like what degree nostalgia might might play in 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 how. Uh, in how things connect with us and, and that kind of uh, kind of thing. Right on. Um, yeah. Cool, uh, Frank. So, yeah. uh, just giving the mic back to you as we wrap up. Is there anything that you would like to promote, and where can people find you out there on the online world? Um, I will not recommend the podcast because again we don't ever <laughs> we don't ever recommend anybody actually listen to it but it's out there if you want to go look for it whatever uh i guess let's see i'm working on rick and morty comics right now a book called undiscovered country with um a couple of you know good writers and artists and color yeah everyone, you know what i'm saying undiscovered country it's doing pretty well uh eight billion genies which is another image book as well and uh, we wrapped up Jana last year. Uh, I don't know if there's any more of that coming or not, but it's still the trades in, in stores, and you can still find that. And it's a really fun story. Volume three is coming soon, everyone. Is it? All twelve issues make up three little books. Oh, okay, yeah. I think I saw that we've got a deluxe edition coming. Oh, right. Towards yeah. the end of this year as well, or something. Thank you. Cool. Some at some point in the future. I did just do one of the the trade or OGNs I did last year. It was coming out from Dark Horse over the summer, I think. And it's called uh, The Rock Gods of Jackson, Tennessee. It's a kind of T 
teenage coming of age horror story sci-fi music thing <laughs> i'm trying to think how to describe it it's um you know yeah these kids in a rock band and uh giant mutated pigs <laughs> so and it's set like in the right around like 1990 if for that kind of vibe but that that's coming in the summer, and then I I recommend people check that out. That's Mike Norton's on the art on that, and a guy named Rafer Roberts. He wrote for like I think he did Archer and Armstrong for a while. But anyway, um, yeah, and Alan Pasolacqua. It's me, and Mike, and Alan are the Battle Pug. Like we all work together on Battle Pug, and then Grumble. I think was it Grumble? No, that was Marissa. Anyway, yeah, check that out. Rock Gods of Jackson, Tennessee. It's coming from Dark Horse. I guess that's it, really. I could, I mean, I could ramble, but <laughs> I'm sure you don't want that, and I've done enough of that today already. Very good. Tim, where can people find you when you're not talking to me about G.I. Joe things? Video essays on film and television at our YouTube page, Atomic Abe Productions. My brick-and-mortar comic book store is in Somerville, Massachusetts, Hub Comics, and I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com. Wow. Excellent. And you can find out all about our show, Talking Joe, at the website talkingjoe.co.uk. Not nearly as fancy as the kind of websites that Crank would build, but <laughs> it's what <laughs> that I've I done. would build 20 years ago. <laughs> Even what you've built 20 years ago is probably better than my website. Links to all of the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so on. We're also on Patreon. Big thanks to our all of our backers who are getting early access and exclusive content but i think that is us done and big thank you to crank for joining us and revisiting 20 years past at devil's due um but for all of you remember that nobody beats talking show at international podcast laters and that's us done. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate thanks, it. Craig. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, being so generous with your time and your uh, memories. No problem. Again, thanks for having me. It was enjoyable talking to you guys.